I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a world where conflict and crisis seem out of control, it often feels hard to imagine how any of us as individuals can make a difference. And I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. Making a difference isn't something that happens with the click of your fingers. Building our own leadership and the leadership of others is frequently slow and is rarely a journey we go on alone. It is an inward-looking and outward-looking journey that requires us to examine how our experiences shape who we are as public people. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Emmanuel Gatora. Emmanuel is the lead organiser for the East London Citizens Organisation, commonly known as TELCO. It was the first broad-based community organising group in the United Kingdom and the original chapter that gave birth to Citizens UK, the country's largest community organising network. Telco is about to celebrate its 25th birthday. It's a party delayed by COVID, and while it doesn't look a day older than 25, Telco is actually 27. Today, Emmanuel shares the origin story of community organising in the United Kingdom and how it transformed his life and the lives of others through campaigns for things like living wages. He equally shares his own journey about his life in Zimbabwe, his journey as a migrant, his place in his church and his work amongst others. While our planet struggles with global conflict, Emmanuel's story is a reminder that a better world is not just something built by others, but the responsibility of each of us every day. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are now broadcast on Acast as part of the Iconoclast Network, so you can find us there as well as on all the usual podcast apps. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome, Emmanuel, to Changemakers. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I am well, and we're in London. And sadly, the weather has now turned and it's drizzly and cold. It's the London that we all know and love. That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. We did have a little bit of sunshine, so... I know. I felt like I brought that with us. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit of Australian sun. But it's now gone. Anyway... So we're delighted to have you here on the podcast to talk about the history of community organising, really, in, in, in London and the history of this organisation, Telco, which is where it all started. But before we get into any of that, let's talk a little bit about you. So, Emmanuel, if, what kind of changemaker 
are you? I think quite simply for me, uh, I'm a community organizer. Um, I didn't start out to become one, uh, but here I am. I think for me, the broad-based nature of organizing is quite attractive uh, for me as a as a practicing Christian. Um, I came across uh, what was then known as the Citizen Organizing Foundation, Citizens UK as it is now known, in the late 90s, I would say, uh, through my church. You were an early adopter. Uh, early, early adopter, but I didn't know what I, it was I was adopting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I've been a community organizer with Citizens UK for 15 years, but I've been involved since 97, 98. Yeah, excellent. And and it's an interesting uh, story of community organizing in the United Kingdom. You know, organizing in the style that you work in is often associated with Saul Alinsky, with an American tradition, but actually it's got a really long tradition here too. And I'm, I know we're going to hear a bit about that story today. But the first thing I would like to talk about rather than talking about their stories is to talk a little bit more about yours. So you just said um, <laughs> you were so, sort of surprised to come into this work of, of organizing and you find the broad-based work as a, as a, as a Christian um, compelling and interesting. You know, go back as far as it makes sense. Tell us the long story, if you might, about why community organising feels like the right space for you. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Zimbabwe uh, and I was born in 1973, which means I'm now 50. But back, going back, it's uh, in my country, you start school age seven. So that would be 1980. Uh, that's the same year that Zimbabwe gained uh, independence from Great Britain. And for listeners who don't know, uh, between 1890 and 1980, uh, Zimbabwe was under colonial rule. Uh, if you like, um, the Rhodesian government imposed its own form of apartheid. Mm. Uh, so what that meant for children like myself at the time is that um, the Rhodesian government spent 20 times more educating white children compared to black kids. Um, but I was lucky to become that first generation, part of that first generation who went to school at that time. Yeah, wow. Uh, so we were told you could become anything you want to be. So I came here to the UK to study engineering. That was my dream since I was about 13. Oh, you have to tell us why. Like, what was, where did engineering come from in your passion? Um, Partly, I think, uh, so my mum, who's actually just arrived from Zimbabwe a couple of days ago, worked for the airline. And when I was about 11, we did a school project that said, spend the summer, think about what you want to become. So the title was, when, I, when I'm older, I want to be blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. So I spent that summer at the airport. Oh, that's so <laughs> my, gorgeous. Uh, my uncle was an engineer. My mom worked at the airline. My cousins worked in the catering part of the uh, airport as well in, in Harare. So the whole thing about aircraft and how this big metal thing stays up in the sky was really the thing that drove me, plus also the, my family's connection to, mm. to the industry. Yep. So you came to the UK to become an engineer. That's what I did, yeah. So from the age of 13 to about 23 for a decade, that was my focus. And I guess that kind of makes sense in my story because I'm the eldest of four. I'm a boy. I'm from an African family. Also, my dad died when I was five, so kind of became the man of the house, as it were. 
in that sense. Yeah, so that that is that is the, a bit of the story, and I guess education really plays a big part uh, of, in my story because uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Zimbabwe story, Robert Mugabe was the first uh, president. Uh, he was a teacher mm. by profession, so that whole reversal of colonial rule started there, really, in that in that sense. So I actually came to the UK on a scholarship to study, and the Zimbabwean government paid for my education. Um, yeah, and so that is that is the legacy. I mean, for the other things that Mugabe did, but education for me was, you know, that's the reason I'm here, really. So then, where did the journey go? Right. So you're here. You're you're on this scholarship. You're going to be an engineer. Right. Where did, where did that move to? Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so. I studied hard like they told me I should. I graduated uh, from Hertfordshire, University of Hertfordshire, Aerospace Systems is what I studied. I got a job um, with British Aerospace, now known as BAE Systems, um, but I couldn't start the job uh, because of my immigration story. BAE, uh, the main supplier for the Minister of Defence in the UK, so you needed a 10-year security check and the paperwork obviously had to go to Zimbabwe. It did, but it never came back. So after six months of waiting, um, the company gave the job to somebody else because I didn't have the right clearance to do the job. Wow. How, I mean, I could ask you about how that felt at the time. I can imagine it was crushing. But how do you think that that then sh- helped you, ch- like, what did you then, how did that then direct your energy next? It was a question. Yeah. Um, and the question was, is there more to life than this? Wow. That's a big way to answer that question. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, because I'd, I'd gone into this for my family. I'd gone into this for the prestige. I'd gone into this for um, making sure that my family were looked after back home. Mm. The intention was to go back to Zimbabwe and, and work in the industry. Yeah. I couldn't go back because at that time, incidentally, Zimbabwe's fortunes has also started to dwindle. Uh, God answered that question, I believe, because I found faith through that wow. journey. I ended up in a church in North London. Uh, I used to pass the church on my way to football, actually, I used to play football. I used to see this as a Pentecostal church, so big, bright hats. Every Sunday, I, I, I used to laugh and say, you'll never find me in a church on the way to football. Mm. I got invited to a church by a friend. I'd, moved, I'd since moved from the area. A friend of mine invited me to a church. It was the same church. Wow. Why'd you go? Curiosity. Curiosity mainly. Let's try I, I was I was seeking answers then, actually. Yeah. Um, maybe there's an answer in the church. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, and that you were open to that probably makes you a great organiser. Yeah. So um, I, I found the answer in a man called Eric Brown. So Eric Brown had gone to the States sort of late 80s mm. with Neil Jameson. You're going to have to explain a little bit about that to story. To explore this um, community organising thing. So Eric Brown was my pastor of the New Testament Church of God in Wood Green. Um my dad, my spiritual dad, uh, in a sense. Oh. And um, Eric uh, was very close to Neil. He was, at the time, the national director for the youth of 
the New Testament Church of God nationally. And Eric and, and, and Neil and other people I know uh, went to the States. And when they came back here, they were part of um, kind of forming the COF and actually... Which, which is basically the, the first seeds of community yes. organising in this country. So Eric was one, one of the few. Um, I know there were others like Bishop Guzelli, Benedict Farrell, Paul Regan, uh, Bishop uh, Tim Stevens, who were part of the like the first five sponsoring committee for Telco yeah. in, uh, I, th- I guess that was 1993. But Eric Brown was actually the f- founding, uh, I think, the founding uh, chair of trustees for COF. Yeah, wow. Um, and that's how I came across organising through Eric and Neil and that connection. One degree of separation to the start (laughs) of the Community Organising Foundation. Wow. Yeah. So you found faith and organising in in the same person in a sense. Yeah, and I guess the the kind of trajectory or the movement into into community organising was more because – I wanted to become then a, a minister in the church. I went, yeah. to, I went to Bible school. So, well, you a dedicated guy. I uh, want to yeah. be an engineer. <laughs> I'm diving in. I want to be in this church. I'm becoming a minister. They That's are right. Huge commitment. Yeah. Um, I guess I was very decisive then. And the church helped me to, to get into Bible school. They paid for some of my fees, which was really good. Mm. And it was when I was in Bible school that I came across liberation theology. And, you know, I've, I've got a strong Catholic education from Zimbabwe. So the first, one of the first schools to desegregate in, in, in Harare, Independence, that's the school I went to. Uh, I also went to the same school as Robert Mugabe. Wow. I went to the president's school uh, for one year before I came here. Mugabe was educated by Jesuits. I was educated by Jesuits as well as mm. Dominican nuns, yeah. German Dominican nuns in primary school. So that whole liberation theology sort of took me back. And it was actually uh, taught by a white South African. Wow. I've, so I love the idea that you were taken back to the roots that you grew up with by a white South African. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. He, he uh, Derek Sheriffs, actually, uh, a London School of Theology then, really encouraged me to read broader, mm. uh, listen to the songs I grew up listening, didn't really know they were liberation songs. Um, and that really connected everything, I think, uh, for me. Just the dots really connected uh, in, at that time. In terms of the meaning of life, in terms of your purpose, like what, what dots yeah, do you I mean, reckon? Yeah, the, the purpose, in, uh, both really. So mm. I think this is what I meant to do. Yeah, wow. Let's have a go. Let's see what, what comes out. So I went back to the church and became the youth uh, pastor there. Uh, and it was at the time, around the same time that I was really now, I'd, I'd done my, my six-day training, national training with Citizens UK, we started to teach the young people about leadership um, and got into all sorts of trouble there as well because we were we were calling the young people leaders and the church structures sometimes don't see young people <laughs> as leaders. So that was that was the trajectory and that's everything kind of connected for me. So organizing brought together my my kind of past story, my upbringing, my. Um, kind of theology as such, um, but also the stuff around uh, young people 
so in being in North London, there were a lot of knives and guns. Um, still, still is the case really. So as a youth pastor, I would often get called with a young by a young person or by the police who caught him, one of my young people carrying a knife, and you know these young people would never know what to do if mm. they ever found themselves in a situation. So it kind of brought together quite a lot of things for me. Yeah. Um, personally, I think one of the things that I was angry about at the time uh, was the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Right. Uh, Stephen Lawrence was a young black man who got murdered in a racist attack in South London. He was probably about a year younger than me. Uh, and it was around the time of his inquest um, that I was, you know, a youth pastor. Um and he would just, you know, me and my friends would often reflect that Stephen could be any one of us. Um, I was angry about the injustice that had, you know, followed uh, in terms of the police investigations and so on. I had no idea, you know, that where would I channel <laughs> this yeah. anger? And I think I do remember distinctly after the national training around 2001 a few years later maybe 2002 2003 i one of my first leadership experiences with telco was reading a poem i'd written about stephen lawrence on stage at a telco assembly and that kind of gave me a bit of a channel for my anger yeah um i thought this this could work actually um let's see wow you're giving me goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. It also is a reminder that some of these stories, you know, the George Floyd story is a long, 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 before Black Lives Matters. this is a long it's story. It's a long story. We need new strategies or we need old strategies to be able to really come at these questions. So you found that in community organising. Now we are going to talk a lot about community organising here and in particular we're going to talk about this first organisation, because Telco, and I'm going to explain what it is, the East London Community Organisation, Telco is celebrating its 25-year anniversary in this year. So this is uh, 2023, we're recording this podcast. Um, and I really, like some of our listeners will be going, oh yeah, I've heard of community organising. But actually, I also think that plenty of our listeners will be going, what? And uh, you know, even though we've done quite a few episodes on community organising, I think it's always helpful. Maybe I'll get you to start by just going, you know, when you think of explaining community organising to someone who doesn't know much about it, how would you explain it? There's lots of terms and concepts, but how do you explain the work that you do? I think the the, the explanation for me that makes sense, that's all quite a, a, usual, not usually easy to explain. So for me, community organising is equipping everyday ordinary people with the recognition that they have power to make change and for us in 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 citizens uk and the methodology that we've adopted it's really well you know to, i could break it down into five steps and we use this in our training the five steps uh, method is first we organize uh, and what that means is we go into pockets of power institutions from civil society faith, non-faith, um, education, community groups. And these are pockets of power that are or, already have people. They already have a mission. They already have a vision of what society should and could look like. Uh, and so that's the first, uh, that's the first step. We also organize money, which is important for mm. us uh, because we want to be independent and we want our members uh, to own what we do. Um, so that's the first step. The second step is that uh, we listen. 
we listen to really what is putting pressure on people's families, their communities, and then we plan. Mm-hmm. We think about what are the potential solutions, what are the strategies or tactics that we could use, and then we take action. Because if we don't act, nothing changes, and we act to get a reaction, we act to get respect, we act to get recognition, we also act to get a result because we want to win. And after we act, um, sometimes that gets us into a room in terms of negotiation and re- negotiation for change. And also we recognize that, you know, being at the table, we often say in community organizing, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. Um, but we recognize that being at the table is only really the first step. When you're at the table, the second step, you need to get a deal. Yeah. And when you leave the table, the third level of power is that you need to keep the deal. Mm. Uh, and so we negotiate for change. We don't, you know, we often say we don't throw stones at empty buildings or break glass. That's not our method. We sit down and negotiate for change and we train ordinary everyday people to tell their stories that humanizes the issues that they're facing. And then after we've negotiated, we do evaluation, which is quite key for us and reflection uh, in terms. So that's really the method, mm. uh, but it, it is really institutionally based and for us, it's broad-based as well. You know, we work with different types of institutions and we work on lots of different issues. So that's, in a nutshell, my mm. view of what we do here as community organizing. Yeah, yeah. And it's a powerful practice that is deep here. It's long here, 25 years we're celebrating. This is kind of celebrating the, the history of community organizing in the United Kingdom. But it's also in the United States, in Canada, it's in Australia, it's in New Zealand, it's Germany, it's all over the place more common in this particular practice uh, way of doing it way of training it in the global north but it's very widespread as as a as a way of working so i'm interested in you know you've you've already hinted at how community organizing started in the united kingdom and i'm keen to given the anniversary i'm keen to like, to share that story like tell us please <laughs> how did telco the east london community organization how did it start well actually the the um, the name telco it, it, we changed the name but still remain telco so we oh, are, you don't call it the oh okay, case. So we are, we are we are we are we are called the the East London. We changed the C, so it was communities, but it's now citizens. Oh right, so oh, I'm, a po- the I'm a, just an old behind the times person. <laughs> apologies, apologies. So we are, we are the East London Citizens Organisation. It's a bit of a funny story to that because as we grew, uh, we we got South London citizens. We got. West London citizens, we've got North London citizens, we've got Birmingham citizens, and so on and so forth. So the idea was that, well, why doesn't Telco change its name? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we we changed the C so that we could still have East London citizens in there, but mm-hmm. still kept the name Telco. Cool. We actually had to take a vote on it if you... Oh, well, you of course imagine. you did. You're, you're a democratic organization, I don't doubt. So I guess... For in terms of telco starting point, I know that there had been an, a, a, a body of work that was done in terms of community organizing by Neil in, in, in Bristol and, and, and Liverpool and other places. Mm. But for here in East London, the, the sponsoring committee uh, was made up of uh, a couple of people. Firstly, so Bernadette Farrell, who then became, uh, uh, she's a Catholic liturgist. She became uh, a community organizer here and then went to start South London. Reverend Paul Regan from uh, the Methodists uh, also was 
uh, on there, John Whitwell uh, and uh, Reverend Roger Sainsbury, as well as Bishop uh, Guzelli, Roman Catholic Bishop in East London. So that's how it started. And the kind of catalyst there was the former Bishop of Leicester, uh, Reverend Tim Stevens, who was the Archdeacon in West Ham, uh, West Ham uh, in, in East London. He had visited the IF work in Texas. Right. Uh, in 1990. And so IAF, just so people know, is Industrial Areas, Areas Foundation, Foundation and it's the US organisation right, that does this work. Right. Yep. Set so up he, he had visited them and was really blown away by what he saw uh, in 92 and he came back and convinced his friends to start something. Um, and so that's how we started. Um, uh, the Bishop of Chelmsford uh, also then released uh, Reverend Peter Welton to get involved from a small parish base in Canning Town, East London. Uh, they raised money from the Methodists and the Church Urban Fund. And Telco started in 1996 with a thousand people, 30 Jews pay member institutions uh, at your call, not far from here in East London. Their first major win that they celebrated at that launch was an investment of 1.5 million by a, a, a company called Pura Food, who had had to invest that money in a in a chimney to reduce the smell wow. <laughs> in the area uh, in Canning Town. Uh, and they were celebrating that win as part of their launch. And so that was the kind of birth, if you like, of mm. Telco. And then zero to five years, they... Um, did a lot of listening around hospitals and cleanliness and housing and low wages. And actually the living wage campaign was launched, and this is really significant, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, was launched at the fifth anniversary of Telco. Mm. So in 2001, they launched living wage. And for those who are not in the United Kingdom, the living wage campaign is, is an enormous piece of work in the United Kingdom that also was an enormous piece of work in, in the United States. That's it's right. sort of a historic <clears throat> piece of work that started in Baltimore, people like Jonathan Lang initially, and then it's spread and it's really become a, a sort of sort of changed the landscape in the United Kingdom around wages, really. Around wages, yeah. yeah. And we, you know, at that time we were told it couldn't be possible. Oh, no. Um, Nothing's possible until – everything's impossible until it's possible, Until right? it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first five years and then – uh, in the next kind of five years, the first London Mayoral Accountability Assembly was held at Queen Mary University, and that kind of gave way to early victories and negotiations with uh, East London hospitals and getting HSBC um, and Barclays Bank and other finance houses in Canary Wharf, which is a big financial district in East London. Uh, to also pay the living wage. And so, and you know, I invite people to be thinking about, this is a multi-issue agenda, right? We've gone from environmental justice around a, a, a smoking um, stack to now living wages with all these different partners. It's 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 varied. What it, Like, I guess the consistency is we, we are for the people in this place. That's right. But the breadth is what are the issues in this place? We will work on all of those issues where we, where we feel like those issue, working on those issues brings people together. That's right. That's right. So, and I mean, that sounds a bit of a quirky thing to start with. You know, this place it's, it's smells. Not, <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't smell anymore. It doesn't smell anymore. <laughs> Um, but it galvanized the the people and showed them what was possible. Yeah. Um, and they went on to actually set up the Living Way unit in City Hall with the Mayor of London then. And there were other commitments uh, as well. Um, Strangers into Citizens was launched in those next five years. So between 
2002 to 2007, which was a campaign that was seeking uh, regularization of people who didn't have a uh, their stay. You'd like doc, immigrant the, documentation. Immigra- immigration documentation, yeah. So that, that started in, in, in East London. And for people who don't know East London, why would that be an important issue in this place? Well, East London has always been home to lots of migrant communities, um, you know, it's one of the diverse, di- most diverse places in the world. It in feels the like. world, and yeah. you know, some of our you know different waves uh, of of immigrants have settled here. Uh, we had the Jewish community settling here um, before that. Uh, we had you know other, other communities settling here. Uh, we've also now got a huge Bengali population settling here, uh, and so it is it is home to uh, lots and lots of migrant communities, mm. uh, and it has been. And it's you got know, huge institutions that support those communities. Like, yeah, I mean, this is this is the home of the Salvation Army, yeah. um, and also the mosque, the, and, the, and, the Great and, London Mosque, and, and the mosque. Uh, you know, and in terms of some of that history, I think we just build on that. We are part yeah. of that history. We build on that history. Well, because this is, you know, listeners, you know, another thing to like to clock is the institutional nature of this work and its and its location in religious institutions, which is often not thought of by a traditional activist as necessarily an ally for um you know in, in inverted commas progressive campaigning, right? But but what your what what Citizens UK has done, what Telco does, the work that you do is evidence that actually when it comes to to changing our communities, we've got lots of allies and institutions like faith institutions that have a call inside of themselves for for caring for each other and for, for love and sit, the, the citizenship, caring for their neighbour, that, that call can allow those institutions to become activated around these kinds of issues. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it... It is that history, I think, of the there's a there's a there's an East End identity, if yeah. you like, that goes back, um, and some of that history too. Um, you know, for example, the the living wage, the the kind of forerun of the living wage is is the Dockers Tanner, mm. which was part of the Dockers strikes in the in the docks. Yeah. And, and the formation of unions. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you this know, this is a the, long, long history here. It's, it's, it's so, so we do build on that history, really. We do, uh, as we are part of, you know, continuing that tradition. Mm. And I guess that's, you know, just a flag for listeners. I mean, it's not often that an, an institution that runs big campaigns is around for 25 years. You know, this is a long organisation. This is not a one-trick pony that runs a campaign and then it's done and then it, the, the organisation slowly folds. The, the capacity to sort of move through that action cycle where you can revisit and reinvigorate the kind of issues that you work on through listening and move in different directions as it requires, that's quite distinctive to this to organizing as a practice yeah and i think for telco as the founding chapter that is even more so um because we realize that as the legacy chapter it's easy for us to look back yeah and say yeah you know we started this we pioneered this which which we did but we've also challenged ourselves consistently to become not just to look at ourselves as the eldest chapter but to also be the freshest chapter. Nice. You're the oldest brother. Yeah, but, but we're also fresh. <laughs> but you're super fresh. Brilliant. 
Can I ask, it's a, I mean, there's so many significant things. I know that in particular one of the things that, that, that Telco and you played a big role in was the Olympics. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that work because that, that does feel like legacy work. Yeah, and I think the the story goes back to maybe four years before I came on the scene as a as a you know member of staff here at Citizens UK in around two thousand and three two thousand and four. The organisation had uh, run a campaign, had written to the International Olympics Committee. It was actually uh, a, a minister in the Methodist Church in Stratford who challenged Telco to think about the Olympics. Jan nice. Atkins, her name. Nice. Is. So Jan said to the leadership, if, if, if this is coming, we don't know if we're going to win the bid, right? But if it's coming, we better be prepared. And so they got to thinking about that and wrote to the IOC, International Olympic Committee, to say the people of East London would like a piece of the pie. Mm. Um, they would like to have these guarantees uh, which we then negotiated. So the guarantees were the people, it was called the people's ethical guarantees for the Olympics. So they included living wage, affordable housing, jobs for young people, uh, training facilities and, and health facility actually on the Olympic Park. And the idea was to use that to make the Lower Lee Valley, which is the area that the Olympics Park is in, actually a living wage zone and an affordable housing zone as well. So they had all these and they said, we will withhold our support for the bid until these are signed off. So that time we had that power to kind of leverage that conversation. Go on, tell us how you, how it played out. So really the way that it worked was there's a famous photo actually of uh, Sebastian Coe, Lord, Lord Coe now as he's known, uh, who was leading the bid team and then mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, with a few of our young people actually signing the people's guarantees. So it, it was signed and that's basically what then shaped the work with successive Olympic bodies. So starting with the Olympic Delivery Authority uh, who uh, basically built the, the Olympic Park um, and then LOCOG who ran the games and then the LLDC, the London Legacy Development Corporation, who are now looking after the legacy of the of the park. So all of those committed, including Westfield. Actually, Westfield is a big player in this mm. because it, Westfield was the gateway to the Olympics. So Westfield, for those who don't know, is a massive shop, shopping precinct in, in East London. There's also one another yeah, one in West London. Yeah, they're by an Australian, right? They're Australian <laughs> as well. Um, so one of my early, actually, um, kind of, negotiation meetings that I was there mostly to observe was with John Burton, who was then chief executive of Westfield to negotiate that Westfield also become part of this living wage idea. And I, uh, you know, as it is, the Olympic park is a living wage zone. I think there is still a little bit of work to be done, but you know, most people there who've been there historically do uh, pay the living wage. So that's really how it happened. So we got the deal. We were yeah. at the table, got the deal, but I had to, we had to keep the deal. And so there were lots of assemblies um, to ma maintain those deals, to, you know, encourage people to remember those deals. There were lots of different assemblies, delegates assemblies or telco assemblies that I was part of, uh, mostly initially led by Matthew Bolton, who is now a director, but he, when he was an organiser in East London, 
and then also by Lena Jamul, who um, was also the lead organizer in East London before me. Um, so there were lots of assemblies, lots of meetings, negotiations to not only get the deal, but also to keep the deal. And it says something about politics that I think is not often well understood, which is political life isn't just about some great one-off policy. It's about the process of being able to stick at it, you know, like that you are here as a permanently, you know, permanent organisation, you know, an established organisation here for 25 years with relationships across the network. You're in a position to be able to constantly negotiate the political life of this place. You come up with cool policies, don't get me wrong, cool policies all the time, but it's not the cool policies, the single ideas that are that are changing life. It's it's the power to get others to deliver them and negotiate with you to make them happen. Yeah, and I and, and you're right there. I think the the thing that makes that possible is their institutions. And the, and the focus on institutions, which are, you know, really important for our democracy because they do that job of mediating or, you know, minimizing the impact of the market uh, mm. on people's lives. Um, you know, the people in the institutions might change. I mean, in telco, actually, we still have a lot of the people who were there in 96 are still here. Nice. Um, <laughs> so that's a blessing. Yeah, but it's not always the case. Yes, that's true. And we recognize that, actually. We, I think, are incredibly blessed to have, you know, uh, Paul Regan, <laughs> who was on that initial um, sponsoring committee to get this off the ground. Uh, he's still very much that's acting in, 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 in this, as well as others, of course. But I think that, deep institutional basis is what really helps us to sustain the work. So yeah. it's not a one-off. And I, th- I think that kind of suits me personally as well in terms of my personality and my way of working is that because I've come from an institution, I understand how yeah. institutions work. We have to be really deeply respectful of those institutions and understand how they work. And also sometimes understand, you know, sometimes there are tensions between institutions or misunderstandings we also have to navigate through those. Well, there's just incredible difference, right? right? Like, and that's part of the, you know, broad based is that you've got institutions, they're not the same. You know, we're not, all of us as individuals are not the same, but our institutions can have stark differences. And that's I correct. guess part of what I see in the work that you've done over all this time is create a space for people to be able to work out how to build relationships across difference. Yeah. And I think, you know, just going back to to the Olympics, it was those different types of institutions, you know, young people got involved as well, working together to think about, okay, so what's in it for us? So yes, Mm. there is affordable housing. So Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, actually commissioned a small pilot project at St. Clements in East London to say, if you can create these community land trust homes, which are homes based on your earnings, not the market, um, then you can have some on the Olympic Park too. So, you know, St. Clements, we've got 23 23 homes there and that's actually been the catalyst for other community land trust homes across the city. The one on the Olympic Park is still yet to come, though we have seen the piece of land that's been assigned to to those 20 or so homes, uh, CLT homes. But it's also meant that we've changed the, conversation around affordability especially mm-hmm. with the current mayor uh, Sadiq Khan on the Olympic Park as well we did a huge drive you know even though we'd won the living wage we'd won the jobs we were hearing stories during the Olympics or well, before just before the Olympics that a lot of our people were going to these training 
But somebody was getting paid to train people for jobs that didn't exist or jobs oh. that existed, but they didn't have access to the jobs. So a few people would do, you know, months of training, but no jobs. And so we ran a massive jobs campaign uh, with LOCOG and we actually managed to place 1,500 people from our institution. So we turned our member institutions, the church, the mosque, the school into local job hubs. Wow. And we worked with Queen Mary and we had 100 people trained to actually deliver 1,500 mm. people into and those jobs. And this is the st- a strength that comes from working with institutions. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So my final reflective question, if I can turn it to that, I mean, you could, we could be here all day. You're talking about how all the awesome things that Telco has done, and I'm sure you will at the big assembly that you're about to have, right? But I'm wondering, you know, when you reflect on your time working with Telco and working as an organizer and as a, as a leader at the church before that, what do you think this kind of practice, this broad-based community organizing has taught you? It's taught me a lot of things. I guess the really basic thing has taught me a lot about myself. I think I have become or I am becoming a better public person. Like I said at the beginning, I never set out to do this work, but I realized that change doesn't happen unless you step out into the public arena. And I've actually been surprised that people like me, uh, whose kind of tendencies are towards introversion, lots of people like me I've met uh, on this journey who've, you know, Uh, shown a lot of bravery in stepping, telling their stories, but also taking action. So I guess it's taught me about me is is the most basic thing. But also I think one of the most, it sounds a bit cliche, but people really don't care what you know until they know that you care. Uh, And I think it's that deep rootedness in, in, in institutions that matters for me. And also I think the, probably the third thing is, really the impact that people can have once we come together and we ignore what society says, we ignore what some politicians say, you know, be suspicious of the other. Yeah. Be suspicious of the person that's different to you. I think we've learned, you know, organizing helps us to embrace those differences as strengths rather than as a weakness. Mm. And actually you are allowed to be 110% Christian, 110% Muslim, Jewish, or whatever you are in this organization, we actually value that. Mm. And so that's really taught me, you know, that you can build consensus and that you can actually win when you do that. Yeah. Well, because the space puts relationships ahead of action. That's right. You can see all of a person rather than just seeing a, a label or a, or, or a prejudice. That's right. And it creates, it just creates more space for public life when we do that. Yeah. Oh, Emmanuel, this has been a delight and a joy. Yeah, Thank likewise. you so much for, share, for just sharing what has been an extraordinary history, but also in part your life story. I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Amanda. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemaker's audio producer is Jules Walker. We are broadcast on Acast and a part of the Iconoclast Network. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out 
at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter slash X, whatever, at Changemakers99. And I'm kind of there at Amanda Tats. And check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the online video and digital content from our Changemakers Organising School that can be found on our website. All of it helps if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemakers.